Thank you for listening to Caleb versus Self. On this episode, I speak with Brian Wells from the Homestead Journey podcast and 3B Farms in upstate New York. We talk about how he started homesteading, how the terms sustainable and organic sometimes miss the mark, and how so many communities tend to run people away from their craft instead of welcoming new people with open arms. You can find Brian at the Homestead Journey podcast, the Homestead Journey on Instagram, and on YouTube at 3B Farm and Homestead. Uh, It was a fantastic conversation. I'm hoping this spring to be able to raise a couple little chickens with my girls. Uh, I'm probably going to lean on Brian for the wealth of information he has, not only on his podcast, but on YouTube as well. Thank you again for listening, and hopefully you enjoy this conversation. So, as always, Brian, thank you so much for hopping on. Uh, I've got Brian with me. Um, I'm just going to hop right into it, first and foremost. Um, how is it that you got into homesteading, sustainable lifestyle, this whole thing that you're doing right now? Like, what's the origin story there? Really, it goes back to before I was ever born. Um, my my family and my wife's family really have roots in this kind of lifestyle of raising and growing a lot of your own food. And I I think for for our grand you know parents and grandparents. A lot of it was just that's the way they had to live to survive. Right. Um, so we grew up around this. And for us, we didn't have a name for it. It was just living. That's just how you lived your life. You you planted a garden. You preserved the harvest. You know, you raised the animals. And now when I say we grew up around it, at, at some times in our lives, I think both of our families would have been considered more in the homesteading genre, so to speak. And other times, not so much, you know, it was kind of ebbs and flows a little bit, but we certainly grew up around this. And so it's just kind of been living. It was, it's just life to us. And it was in 2017, I actually got some American guinea hogs. And that's when, as I was learning about how to raise them, that I discovered a name for what we were doing. That's when I really associated homesteading with our lifestyle. Now, before that, I actually remember my mom um, referring to herself as a homesteader as they had bought a piece of property a few years after we did. And when she started referring to herself as a homesteader, I kind of rolled my eyes. I'm not going to lie because there was just (laughs) something about that term. I don't know what it was, but I just kind of associated it with, I don't know, it's probably judgy on my part, but. I just sure. have a very positive view of, of homesteading at that point. And then when I discovered this whole world of modern homesteading, um, again, it was just like, oh, wow. Okay, that's what we're, what we've been doing all of this time. And it just kind of further fanned the flames and fueled me and really opened up my eyes to so many different things beyond what we were already doing. I think that... that- sums up a lot of people who who partake in homesteading right now. I mean, it's really a lifestyle. It's something that you typically speaking have been raised in or, or at least have some glancing knowledge of. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, if it's your folks, they have, oh no, I've lost it. The, the humming bee homestead. Is that what they call it now? Yeah. Yeah. So they, they have a little over two acres. I believe it is. They refer to it as a humming bee homestead. And, and, and again, I mean, I'm just told to be honest, I've told my mom this when she, when she referred to it as a humming bee homestead, I rolled my eyes. I don't think <laughs> I did it in front of her, but I was just like, oh, sure. come on, mom, I mean, come on, what's up with this. And, uh, and now here it is, you know, you know, forward out a few years and, and, you know, it's three B farm and homestead and, 
and uh, we we've kind of embraced all of this. Um, but yeah, so they actually on their homestead, they're raising, uh, they've got a large garden. They raise chickens, they raise meat birds. Um, they have honeybees, which is where the humming bee, uh, thing comes from Gotcha. and, okay. uh, fruit trees. So they do a lot of stuff up there and then a lot of canning, pre- you know, preserving of food, dehydrating, you know, you name it. They, they do it. My mom's also a quilter. My dad loves to work with his hands and do woodworking projects. Um, so, so it's a lot of just just being a part of creating almost, right? It might not be art for art's sake. It might not be music for music's sake, but it's it's creating. And it seems like they're really into, right? Like you said, the quilting, woodwork. I mean, it goes far beyond, um, you know, raising things. Absolutely. A lot of times when people think of homesteading, they they – first and foremost, go to raising and growing food. And certainly homesteading, in my opinion, that's a big part of it. But homesteading really goes way beyond that. And there are a lot of activities, I think, that can comprise homesteading, whether it's making knives. I mean, just so many different things that really fit within the world of homesteading. Because to me, really, as you mentioned, homesteading is a lifestyle. You know, some some people try to break it down into this list of things that you do or things that you don't do. And that's what qualifies you as a homesteader. To me, it's, it's more about living life and allowing uh, the way you live, you know, it, it, it impacts virtually every aspect of your life. If, if you stop mm-hmm. to think about it, I, I refer to it on, on the podcast as a journey towards self-sufficiency, self-reliance and sustainability. And as, as you really think that through, that really does impact so many of your life choices. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what else, if I may, right? Because, again, you're getting into these, like, general stereotypes of what a homesteader is as opposed to what a farmer is and so on and so forth. But with homesteading, it seems to be any activity that is pursuant into being able to live a smaller footprint, whether it be a carbon footprint, whether it be whatever. And it could be done for different reasons. Some people just might want, they just prefer to see where their stuff is grown uh, and their food is made. And other people might have more of a practical approach where they just enjoy being outdoors. I mean, are there any other things that you would put into that basket as a homesteader? Well, I think, I think, Number one, there's a, a number of things that drive people to homesteading or bring people to homesteading. I shouldn't say drive. That, that's probably the wrong word, but, but really cause homesteading to be appealing. For some people, it's health challenges. You know, they've gone through health events where whether they're allergic to milk or they're allergic to um, gluten or whatever, just a lot of health reasons really draw people to the homesteading lifestyle. I think there are a lot of people that are drawn to the homesteading lifestyle just because they are drawn to a more, and I hate to use the term simple way of life because sometimes I get upset when people refer to homesteading as simple. It's a, it's a lot more simple to go down to the grocery store and buy chicken than it is to raise your own. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. But, but, but a lot of people do refer to it as, a, you know, kind of back to the earth, back to the land, because people have gotten so disconnected with where their food comes from. There is a certain romantic element to the idea of raising and growing food. But then beyond that, when you look at what we went through in 2020 with regards to scarcity of food and supplies in ways that we have never, ever seen before in our lives, yeah. and, and really our parents never saw anything like that, 
maybe our grandparents or our great grandparents did if they went through the Great Depression. But that's really the last time that we saw things to this scale. Now, I know in the 70s, we could talk about the oil embargo and things like that. But to the scale at which we saw it in 2020, I think that really opened up people's eyes to the fact that we have become very, very reliant on a food supply chain that is very fragile. And so I think that's another thing. You know, it's it's kind of funny. Prior to 2020, preppers and to a certain extent, homesteaders were kind of looked on as kind of the crazy ones. And then all of a sudden in 2020, we were the ones that weren't quite so crazy after all. Um, (laughs) But but I think, you know, beyond all of that, there is a sense to where certain people, I think, are just drawn to doing things with their hands and making things, producing things. And there's just a sense of satisfaction that comes from, from that kind of a lifestyle that to me is unparalleled. If you were to have told me 15 years ago that I would be doing this, I would have laughed in your face. My mom, my mom will tell you that out of her three boys, I was the last one she ever thought would be doing anything like this. I was always the bookworm. Um, I was always the one who was kind of inside. My brothers were always outside, you know, climbing trees, doing this, that, and the other thing. And I was reading books and, you know, now here it is. I've discovered this as far as beyond just the legacy that I grew up around, but I've embraced it as my own. My wife has embraced it and I love it. I mean, it's just something that really, to a certain extent, sometimes consumes way too much of who I am. <laughs> and my wife would probably attest that it consumes way too much of our finances as well. Uh, yeah, but that's, sure. you know, because you can spend a lot of money doing this. You know, raising yeah, and yeah, growing yeah. your own food is not cheap. It certainly mm-hmm. is not. Well, it's it's interesting too, just because when you talk about the the affordability, let's say, of, I mean, really it's equipment. That's a huge factor. I know, was it back in 2018, you had gotten a, a tractor, which you did a nice video on. Um, in in the, the steps that you were talking about having to go through to make sure that you're checking all of those boxes of the things that you are thinking about doing, you're planning for in the future. I mean, that's a lot of things to take into account when you're when you're purchasing equipment like that. And, and quite frankly, I have a tendency to overanalyze everything. Um, I, you know, I will come up with spreadsheets and I mean, I go through and I look at the specs and, you know, that was the first thing you said in that video, by the way, is I, I had to get all the data first. Yeah. Couldn't do anything until I got all the data. I'm just a data. And and, you know, that's what I do for a living. I'm, I'm a data guy, you know, for, for my day job. And so, you know, I think this just kind of flows out of it. But yeah, for me, it's it's a matter of sitting down and, and, and just really analyzing things and trying to understand, does this fit my needs? And am I spending my money wisely? And not just trying to think about, does it fit my needs now, but trying to imagine what are my needs going to be, you know, that crystal ball, what are my needs going to be in, in five years? And then try and mm-hmm. say, okay, am I going to buy a tractor that's going to meet that? Or am I, you know, this piece of equipment, is it, you know, am I buying it big enough? so that I don't have to then buy something else because this wasn't adequate enough. Right. And, and again, I just, with just about everything, I, I probably am way, in fact, I even did a video and people kind of laughed at me about it where I sat down and I analyzed the cost per seed 
from like 10 different seed vendors. Yeah. And so I would know which one provided the best value. Now I had people push back and say, well, it's not just in the seed, you know, it's how it germinates and it's, you know, the service, customer service and yada. And that's true. Um, but it's just who I am. I, I, I just analyze stuff probably way too much. And, but again, for me, part of it is, is you only have a small number of dollars to, mm -hmm. to allocate to this. I want to allocate them as wisely as I can. Do you think that, that homesteading as a whole, and I hate to use that specific phrase, but it's the only one that I can really use, but homesteading and that, that perspective of that lifestyle really lends itself to being able to look ahead that far. Because for example, this last spring, you know, I, I did a little raised garden with my girls. We grew tomatoes and whatnot. And I tell you what, at the end of it, when all the tomatoes are on the ground and I see how much has just been sitting there wasted, my thought is, is, oh, well, that's why people can. And that's why people do the things they do to preserve food for so much longer. Do you think that lends to that mentality in a lot of ways? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that is, has happened in, in our our culture is food has become a commodity. And mm -hmm. we no longer realize how much work, literally blood, sweat, and tears goes into raising and growing food. And so when you raise and grow food and you realize the time, the effort, the energy, the money that went in to producing those tomatoes, and then you see them lying on the ground there just being spoiled, yep. that's soul crushing. At least it is to me. And maybe it's just, I'm a cheap son of a gun. I don't know. Uh, but it is soul crushing to me. And so I think there is a sense to where we preserve the harvest out of respect to the land, out of respect to, uh, you know, the, the time, the effort and the energy that we put into it. But there also is that sense to where we're storing up for a rainy day. We don't know when that rainy day will come but we're storing up so that in case that rainy day comes, we're well positioned to weather the storm. In fact, when the COVID thing, you know, came in, came down in 2020, one of my friends at work said to me, she said, Brian, she said, out of all the people I know, you were the person I was least worried about being able to handle this because she knew that we were well positioned now, we're, we're, are we 100% self-sufficient? Are we 100% self-reliant? Are we? No, we're, we're not. And I don't think sure. anybody will ever get there. Um, mm -hmm. I think we're always on a journey in that direction where we're taking baby steps towards, you know, towards those ideals. I don't think anybody will ever be 100% self-sufficient, self-reliant or sustainable. Um, and that's, and that's absolutely okay. But it's a matter of, can I make decisions today that will help me be more self-sufficient, more self-reliant and more sustainable than I was yesterday, than I was two weeks ago. And, you know, it keeps propelling us into the future. That's interesting too, just because you do, you think of this as a scale, right? Either I'm completely on the grid, quote unquote, right? Or I'm completely off. And there's no, I like that idea of like, you, you know, obviously we can't be one. I mean, you can be one, you can be completely on the grid, but you can't be completely off without making some insane sacrifices. But to be able to slide that scale towards being a little more off of the grid or less dependent on, especially supply chain. I mean, I mean, I live in Rochester, New York, and you can go to Red Lobster and have an Alaskan crab. How many resources were used up transporting that one crab from the Bering Sea all the way to upstate New York? 
I mean, that's just one small bit of it, right? That's, that's absolutely a great point. And that's why even when people talk about things that are sustainably farmed and folk, you know, you do you, I, I'm not sitting here in judgment at all, but sure. on the other hand, when you think about what it takes to get something that has been sustainably farmed in the middle of Timbuktu flown over to Rochester, is that really sustainably farmed? I would mm-hmm. argue that it's not. Um, and, and I'm not, again, I don't, quite frankly, I eat, you know, I go out to, to dinner and I'll have crab. I, I don't, I don't, you know, stress about it. But on the other hand, I think some, sometimes people look for that label to say sustainable and then it makes them feel good. They don't really think about all of the things that really went into it. It's, yeah. it's almost like sustainability has become this trendy thing. It's like, it's, it's the politically correct. It's the trendy thing to be a part of. And so the words really no longer have meaning. I don't think until you, and I'm not saying that everybody has to go out and be a farmer or that everybody else, everybody has to go out and raise their own meat or, or those kinds of things. But when you start taking steps in that direction, or you start supporting local farmers, or you start, uh, you know, you, you buy at a farmer's market, whatever it is, you start becoming more connected to your food. And I think yeah. when you become more connected to your food, you value food a lot more and you're going to have less of a tendency to waste that food uh, the more that you are invested in it. Um, one of the things that I, and this is a bit of an overstatement I, for, for sure, but I, I, I sometimes will say, you know, if you, if you can't kill it, maybe you shouldn't eat it. Now I understand mm that some people don't have the emotional capacity to do that. Okay. Sure. But when you are somebody who harvests an animal and, and there are people who who I know are, are, are very opposed to that. And I understand, I get it. Don't get me wrong. But when you're the one that takes that life, you value that in a way that you, an exchange of dollars will never ever value that, 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 that food. Yeah. And so to me, you know, people will say to me, well, Brian, how can you, you know, how can you raise an animal and then kill it? Mm -hmm. And I have said the moment that that no longer bothers me is the moment that I've made a promise to myself that I am selling every animal that I have. Yeah, because to me, I am respecting that animal by trying to give it as good of a death as it had a life. You know, our goal is one bad day. And Mm -hmm. so, again, when we treat food, whether it's meat, whether it's vegetables as a commodity, and we lose respect for it, we devalue it. To me, that's yeah. not sustainability. Right. And there's a lot of spinoffs from there, right? Because, and let me go right back to the beginning. You talk about being able to go to your local farmer's market, support your local farmers. Uh, maybe even somebody who, for example, down the road from me, there's somebody who uh, is a bee harvester, right? But why don't I buy my honey from that guy instead of, you know, tops or Wegmans or whatever. When you talk about, 
that connection to your food. I wonder, and I'm not sure if you know this, but I wonder how much the more connected you are with your food, the healthier of a lifestyle you're living, just because you're more aware of what you're putting in your body and where it's come from. I wonder if there's a larger connection there, because like you said, you appreciate your food at such a larger extent. You know the people who grew it. You know the time and effort it took. Uh, if you did it, for example, I wonder if there's some sort of a correlation there uh, to just having a healthier mental and physical lifestyle. Um, I 100 percent. I think there is. And maybe, you know, I'm biased. Admittedly, sure. I'm biased. I can't, I can't say sure. maybe. Admittedly, I'm biased. <laughs> but But certainly the fresher the food is in my opinion, the better it tastes. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that will ever compare. There's no store-bought tomato that will ever compare to a tomato that you have picked off the vine that is still sun-warmed and you bite into that tomato and those juices are dripping down your chin. That is heaven. That is mm -hmm. nirvana right there. Uh, there is no better tomato in all of tomatodom than that tomato. Um, and so when you have good food like that, I think that you are going to eat better because the food tastes better. You know, my uncle, he grew up in, well, he grew up around canned asparagus. Now, I don't know if you've ever had canned, canned asparagus. But no, but it sounds awful. Canned asparagus versus fresh asparagus is yeah. like night and day. And he, he, he swore up and down that he did not like asparagus, that asparagus was nasty until he had fresh asparagus right out of the garden. And now he can't get enough asparagus because it is just a totally different quality. Even when you're buying fresh fruits at or vegetables at the, at the supermarket, mm -hmm. and even if they're organic, um, and, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with regard to my thoughts on organic labels. So I, I won't. That I won't. was one of my questions, though, to be okay, fair. Well, if you want to open up that can of worms, I'm going to go there. But uh, but even when you think about those those fruits at the grocery store, mm -hmm. those varieties have been bred not for taste. Not for nutrition, they've been developed for transport, for long term storage all of those kinds of things yeah. where heirloom varieties, they might, they might be ugly fruit, but they taste good. They taste good. And so again, I, you know, we, we joke about kids not liking their vegetables, but the crap that we fed them, I don't like either. Right. When you eat it straight out of the garden or you even stuff that you've preserved, Maybe you've canned it, you froze, you know, you, you, you fermented it, whatever it is, what, what you've done to preserve it, it tastes so much better. And maybe that's all in my head that, you know, that it tastes better. Maybe it's just, I want it to taste better, but I don't think so. I really think that it tastes better. And if it tastes better, you're going to have a tendency to be drawn to those kinds of things. And so I think that it does, it does really contribute to a, an overall healthier approach to living. Um, I, I see it in my kids when we had the garden. I mean, you know, you're there, let's say there's, you know, I don't know. I'll just pick something random zebra cakes, which I'm a big fan of, although they're terrible for you. If you have them in the kitchen, like the girls, you, you can't have them. That's a once in a while thing, but you can have as many grape tomatoes or cherry tomatoes as you can pick off the vine. How, however many you want, I don't care. 
And over time, they're like, yeah, no, can I have some raspberries or can I have some, you know, and they're asking for these foods that I, I'll be honest, as a kid, I didn't ask for those foods. Mm -hmm. I wanted candy bars and Gatorades and, you know, all that type of stuff. So I definitely, I think there's a lot of validity in what you said. And I I see it in my kids, which is why I don't think I'm ever going to stop growing a garden. Just, just for that one reason, if anything else, but. And the other piece to it as well as it gets you off the couch. Yes. At least for me, I, I am somebody, I did the whole go to the gym thing three times a week. I hated every minute of it. Absolutely hated <laughs> every blessed minute of it. So for me, homesteading, the farm, whatever you want to call it, that's my gym. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's moving around a half a ton or a ton of feed. You know, so it, it's lugging water. It's shoveling out chicken coops sometimes. It's, you know, but it, it gets me off of the couch. You know, it keeps me from eating Cheetos and getting fat. Now, <laughs> right. maybe I've still packed on a few pounds, but definitely my lifestyle is a lot more active as a result of being a homesteader than it would be if I wasn't because I know myself. Even now I struggle with sometimes wanting to come home from work and just sit on the couch and, you know, get out the old phone and scroll through YouTube and whatever. Um, And so, you know, I've got to feed the pigs. Nobody else is going to feed the pigs for me. Uh, Sometimes I can sweet talk my wife into doing it, but I I try not to go that route. (laughs) Too, too many times. Uh, sure. But, you know, they depend on me. So I have to do it. You know, in the morning, I have to get up. I've got to lug water out there. It doesn't matter whether or not it's 15 degrees below zero and, you know, you got 55 mile an hour winds. They don't care. They expect to be mm-hmm. fed. They expect to be watered. And, you know, so again, it just keeps you, it keeps you active. And I don't know if it keeps me young and good looking. Well, definitely the good looking part. Uh, I mean, the help, goatee, but... the beard. I'm a big fan, as you can see, of yeah, any facial hair, right? Absolutely. No <laughs> but doubt. But let's, let's briefly move into organics. And I don't want to light a fire uh, on your backside here on this one. But that seems to be a hot and heavy topic no matter where you go, whether it's farming, whether it's nutrition, whether it's homestead, it doesn't matter. So when you talk about organics, I'll just kind of give you at least a brief overview for my thought process. The term itself is kind of ridiculous in a lot of ways because food organically like like tomatoes today and corn today and all all these vegetables and fruits that we have today do not look like what they did a couple hundred years ago so what the hell is organic as opposed to non-organic so organic is supposed to really refer to the manner in which the animal or the vegetable is raised or grown and I don't know, okay. if, is this wind? Can you, are you picking that up? We no, are, no, you're we've got like serious wind going on right now. It's like 55 mile an hour gusts. It's crazy here. We've got it down here too. <laughs> I'm supposed to be going skiing tomorrow at Gore Mountain. Who's it's going to be cold. It's going to be cold. But anyhow, um, so it, it goes back to the manner in which the vegetables or, or the animals are supposed to be raised. And unfortunately, again, it's become this buzzword that really mm-hmm. is meaningless at least in my opinion, um, you now the way we grow it, raise and grow things here on our farm and on our homestead is we try to use the least amount of chemicals and fertilizers and, and antibiotics and those kinds of things possible. Um, but having said that, I'm also not going to sit there and watch an animal die because I didn't want to give it 
an antibiotic that I know would save its life. Like to me, that's, that's insanity. So I think there's, okay. there's proper roles for some of these things that some people would say, no, you have to go homeopathic. It's got to be all natural. It's nice. But at the end of the day, I don't want to see an animal suffer and die when I can give it a shot of penicillin or whatever. Um, and it can live. That's just mm -hmm. me. Now I understand other people make different choices and that's fine. You know, um, the same way in the garden, I try to use, I, I don't use synthetic fertilizers. I try to use natural fertilizers, natural methodologies. Um, I try to, you know, control pests with natural pest control methods. But having said that, if I see something, there's some kind of an infestation and I'm not sure what else to do. If I've got to go in more of a non-organic route in order to preserve a harvest, I just go, go on a more practical approach of do the best you can. Um, right, right. When it comes down to the organic feed that people get so hung up on with regards to feeding to their animals, you know, I've heard way too many stories and there's too many documented stories. It's not just like people telling tales. It's actually documented, you know, legitimate news, not Joe Blow in Idaho's got a blog and writing about, you know, this boat that came out of Turkey that had conventional grain on it and it became organic grain by the time it got here. No, this has gotcha. been well documented. And so yeah. I just don't have any, I don't have any confidence in that label. Um, whereby I'm going to invest more money into a, into a feed that just because it has the organic label on it, I just don't believe that, you know, and then the other piece to it as well is a lot of this stuff comes out of places like Turkey and Russia and China. Give me a break. You know, I mean, if they're calling it organic processes over there, yeah, yeah. I'm just not buying it. Right. That's fair. And, That's more than fair, I think. <laughs> and, and so, you know, for me, I would much rather, and again, there are people who have a different perspective on this than me, and that's fine. It's all good. Um, and I'm not going to say, there's some people that might say I'm a fake homesteader because I'm not full-on organic and full-on whatever. And, and great, if that's their perspective, you know, blessings on them. Um, right, nothing you're going to do to change that. Not at all, not at all. <laughs> and, and to me, I think homesteading is a big tent anyhow. Um there's just a lot of different ways that you can homestead and there's not one right way or one wrong way to do it. But for me sure. personally, when it comes back to the organic piece of, you know, organic fed grain to my animals, I would much rather support a local farmer who may be raising things in a conventional method, but I know where it came from. I know right. the land on which it was, it was, it was grown. I know that it wasn't flown here from Timbuktu. You know, so to me, that's, that's just as important as whether or not it's got this meaningless label as far as something is organic. So anyhow, that's, that's my spiel on that. I, for me, it's <laughs> a matter of trying to do the best you can with what you got. We try to be as organic as possible here. Mm -hmm. I, I really try to use, you know, a minimal amount of antibiotics in my animals. I tried to use, uh, you know, up to this point, I've not had to use any kind of um, non-natural pest control methods with regards to my garden. But at Knock the end of the day, if I have to, 
and that's what I have to do to preserve the harvest. I'm going to roll the dice and go that route personally, um, because you can't, you know, what am I going to do? Sit here and starve in the winter, but, but pat myself on the back because I was organic. That's just, that's insane to me. Um, Yeah. There's definitely a fine line that has to be walked between the two. And I definitely understand for you saying, I'm going to do the best I can with what I have, but up to a point, if I'm going to lose my entire harvest, that becomes no longer worth it. All the effort, money, time spent, trying to raise whether it's it's your animals or your or your garden or your field or whatever it might be at some point there's a tipping point where it just doesn't make sense to not salvage what you can if you can correct and you know even with our pigs we have american guinea hogs um and american guinea hogs are a very very um they're a very robust breed they uh do very well on you know to a certain extent I don't want to say poor feed, don't get me wrong, but you can put them in the woods and they do well. You can give them hay and they do well. Your growth rates are going to, to definitely be, be different. You can give them um, grain, no grain, whatever. They're just a, a, a great homestead pig, but they have been bred over years and years and years to have a certain, what's the word I'm looking for, a health to them. So that they're okay. going to be more disease and parasite resistant. Um, okay, gotcha. And so when, you know, you can definitely breed for those those kind of character traits and those kind of conditions. And sometimes it's a long slog to get there. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, you know, those of us who are breeding now are kind of standing on the backs of, of those who have gone before us and have really developed a breed that that is a little bit more hardy. Um, but when, you know, I've seen people who have let their entire herd of sheep die because they got worms or parasites because they didn't want to treat them with a non-chemical, uh, treatment. To me, it would have made more sense to treat them. And if you don't feel comfortable eating it, then sell it on to somebody who does feel comfortable eating it and then look for a bloodline that is going to be more hardy and resistant to parasites and whatnot that you're dealing with. But just to lose an entire flock because you want to be organic to me, it, it, it it's, it becomes a waste it and is, it almost becomes an oxymoron being a homesteader because part of being a homesteader is being able to do with what you have everything that you can and not wasting right. so doing it that way doesn't make any sense even in the homestead you know to me it name. doesn't and that i'm, I'm man I, it, it sounds like i'm being hypercritical here and i, I don't mean to be because again each sure. one of us have to make our own decisions but for me personally i just see that as such a waste i see that as being not being a good steward of the resources that we've been entrusted with. Mm. And I, I see that as being dishonorable to that animal um, personally. Sure. So again, it's, it's, a, as you said, it's a balance. It's a fine line between, you know, yes, you want to have a robust, very hardy animal that is not going to, you know, be susceptible to, and, and, and then, you know, if, if, they get the parasites or the worms or whatever you got to make a decision are you going to treat them i just i 
I like the idea that you're saying is like, look, just just treat them and move them to somebody who can do something with them. That's much more practical than anything else that I can think of, as opposed to letting, you know, an animal perish for no reason. I get you. But I'll I'll move on from that topic because I'm sure that you could go on and on about that specific thing. But let's talk about these American guinea. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say I probably made a number of enemies with what I've just said, too, because, you know, people that are are straight up like hardcore organic people, it's like, you know, they're they're on that bandwagon. And man, if you're not on that bandwagon with them, um, then then you're not on the bandwagon. (sighs) It's so interesting because I hate to tie this to like today and the political climate, but it feels like that, doesn't it? Like if you're not all the way one way, then you're not us at all. And it's like, wait a minute, why can't we have some sort of a middle ground where we agree, like in your case, we agree that working towards some level of sustainability is good. Can't we just be happy at that point? <laughs> Absolutely. And and it's funny. I mean, I think, I think the whole political um, comparison is, is a very good one because it is amazing to me the, you know, there, there are a number of, of homesteading groups that I'm a part of on Facebook. I'm probably a member of way too many. But sometimes <laughs> sure. the, the, the arguments that people get in over, over stuff, and at the end of the day, you do you, man. If, you know, if you want to be full on organic and, you know, and, and let animals die, that's, that's your business to me. Like, you know, yeah. I, I yeah, hate yeah. to see it. And, and I don't get me wrong, man. I'm not, I'm not advocating animal suffering and abuse. I'm not. Um, right. But, but how somebody chooses to homestead to me, that's their business. If we're on, if we're together on that journey towards self-sufficiency, self-reliance and sustainability, then, then you're my brother. You, you, you know what I'm saying? You're my yep. sister. And, and we're on this journey together and maybe we've got different perspectives, but we can learn from one another. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're on different stages. Maybe you're just more enlightened than I am. And maybe someday I will have the light, you know, the level of enlightenment that you have, and I will be full on organic. Uh, and, and, and then we can sing Kumbaya together. I don't know, but yeah. um, I've never understood that mentality though, Brian, because no matter what it is that you're a part of, whether you're, you know, a computer scientist, whether you're a politician, whether you're a homesteader, I don't care if you have people that are even remotely interested in doing what you're doing, why would you feel the need to like just reject them out of the group that's already probably small enough as it is, right? Absolutely. Like we need each other, you know, we, we, right, we, right. we you know, and, and yet it's like, and, and you're absolutely right. And it doesn't matter, man. It's politics, religion, you know, all of it. like it's just like we the get into thing. all of these like factions and it's like, okay, you want to believe what you want to believe like super strongly. Great, man. You, you go for it. Like I have no problem with that. And I can yep. understand why people do what they do, whether I agree with them or whether I don't agree with them, I can understand. Now, sometimes people are like just cuckoo, you know, and, and it is what it right. is, but they have the right to be cuckoo. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I hope that people give me the space to be, maybe they think I'm cuckoo and that's fine. Yeah. You know, it's all good. Um, right. But you know, I just wish people would embrace that a little bit more, Brian, just like, Hey, it's all good, dude. Like if you want to do you, we can still learn from each other. I personally don't homestead at all. And I'm having a fantastic conversation with somebody who is really passionate about it. Like there's no reason why we can't have this discussion of me say, or you say, well, you're not a genuine homesteader. So I don't want to talk to you. There's no value in that at all. Not at all. And the thing about it is, you know, how in the world am I going to convince other people 
that they that homesteading might be a good lifestyle for them if I don't talk to people who aren't homesteaders. And, right. and and how in the world can somebody, you know, maybe convince me the error of my ways? And man, this is uh, maybe be careful what you you wish for. Because, <laughs> but 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 if if they sure. aren't willing to dialogue with me, yeah, and and have that conversation and give me the opportunity maybe to learn. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, there's no. It's like either you're with me or you're against me. It's like yeah, no, dude, there's no in between. No yeah. in between. And, and I, I hate to get you riled up, but I'm, I'm a huge, I'm getting riled up too. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just, a, I'm a huge advocate of do the best you can with what you got. Yeah. None of us have a perfect situation. This piece of property that we're homesteading on is not the perfect piece of property on which to homestead. We have rocks out the wazoo. The soil is not very deep. I'm surrounded by trees. I mean, I could tell you a hundred things that are wrong with this piece of property. If I were to go out and look for, a piece of property on which to homestead, this probably wouldn't be on my list, but it's where I'm at. And so I'm going to do the best I can with what I got. I'm going to do the best I can with the knowledge that I have. I'm going to do the best I can with the resources that I have. And, you know, just keep trying to take that next step towards self-sufficiency, self-reliance and sustainability. It's all we can do. Just take that next right step. That next right step. That's a, that's a hell of a mission statement, Brian. You should like put that somewhere. <laughs> Just looking for that next step. That's all we're looking for. Well, I wish I could say that was <laughs> that that was like original to me, but the pastor of the church that we used to go to, he would just always say, "Folks, stop worrying about 5 years from now and just take the next right step." That's all you got to do. Take the next yep. right step. Man, there's so much wisdom in that. And it doesn't matter. It's v- ex- extremely valuable info. Yeah. We get so hung up on a five-year plan and we just, we miss the next right step, whatever it is. Yeah. Anyhow, well, you want to let's talk keep about going here. Hacks. Well, I'm going to come to that, but okay. let me backtrack just a little bit. Cause you were talking about how, you know, even your piece of property that you're on right now, it's not perfect for home setting. It wouldn't even make your top 10 list or whatever that might be. And I was watching one video where you were working on uh putting up another chicken coop it looked like i believe it was for meat chickens and it was a video called project oops now project oops does that like in a lot of ways sum up beginning a homestead absolutely now (laughs) now, now, i will say this much you know people say the best way to learn is from your mistakes I, i i say that's hogwash the best way to learn is from other people's mistakes having said that You're going to make plenty of mistakes all along the way. And so if you're somebody who can't learn from your mistakes, God help you in life in general, but homesteading probably isn't going to be for you because homestead, I mean, I, I look back and man, I'm, I'm still making mistakes, but I look back on some of the the mistakes that I've made along the way, um, you know, from how I space my raised beds, for example. I mean, I've got those things way too darn close. I think I, I, I mean, I was trying to get as much food out of an area as possible. And so I got those, I think they're like 18 inches apart, which is great right now. But then you get crops in there, things growing up and they're cascading over the edges. You can't hardly get down the, the road. Without so, stomping on some tomato vines by accident. And But now what am I going to do now? Am I going to dig them all up and move them? No, I got to live with right. the mistakes I've made, you know? Right. Um. You know, and, and I mean, I can go through mistakes, mistake after mistake. One of my biggest mistakes, we decided that we were going to raise 
uh, standard. Well, I shouldn't say we, the proverbial we, me and the mouse in the pocket. My wife, man, I tell you, she is so <laughs> such a long suffering saint. Um, and she, she, I don't want to say it too loud, but uh, <laughs> no, she is. I mean, she has just put up with so much of my foolishness over the over the years, and um, sort of rabbit trail here. She grew up in a part of Pennsylvania that I refer to as Pennsylvania. Um, just the hills okay. and the hollers of, of Pennsylvania. And it was funny this week in Facebook, it popped up a memory that you say you've, and, and I, and I, and I posted and I wish I knew what it was, what the idea was that prompted this post. But I said, you know, you've fallen far when your wife from Pennsylvania thinks your idea is too redneck. So I, I don't know what it was, but it was something that was <laughs> way out there. But, but anyhow, so I came up with this idea that we were going to raise chickens in meat tractors and pull them around. Or I mean, I was going to raise chickens in mobile tractors and pull yep. them around the yard. Now, when we talk about a chicken tractor, a chicken tractor is not a John Deere with a chicken on the side of it. Uh, right. A, a chicken right. tractor is a mobile coop. There's many, many different designs out there, but that's what we refer to as a chicken tractor. So I had this idea. I was going to, I was going to raise chickens in these chicken tractors. So first thing is, I way overbuilt them. They were, they're made out of cattle panels. It's called the hoop coop. Um, you bend a cattle panel over and you know, you have this great design. Well, I way overbuilt these things. They were like, I, they were supposed to have two by four bases. I built them with pressure treated two by sixes. Heavier than a dead preacher. I was going to say, how much does that weigh? <laughs> way too much. It was, it was, I mean, it was all I could do to move them. And my wife, I, I can't give her weight out um, on a podcast, but you know, she doesn't weigh a whole heck of a lot. Um, sure. And uh, she could, there's no way she's moving. No those. way she's moving them. Yeah. But I had this brilliant idea. We were going to raise these chickens and chicken tractors. We were going to move them around our yard. And then to add insult to injury, I saw I could buy a bunch of standard breed roosters for like really, really cheap. Not thinking that a standard breed rooster is going to take like 24 weeks to reach butchering weight versus eight weeks with a Cornish cross. A standard breed rooster is going to be a whole heck of a lot more active. So they're going to peck and scratch things up a lot more quickly than a Cornish cross would. Not to mention that you have 25 standard breed juvenile roosters in a mobile chicken tractor outside your bedroom window and they're learning how to crow. That's not a recipe to have a happy wife and a happy life. No, I wouldn't imagine. At the time, I was traveling quite a bit for, for work. And so I would be gone sometimes for a week at a time. And my wife couldn't move those chicken tractors. And so I would come back and it would just be this moonscape because those chickens had just decimated all of the grass. My yard never has fully recovered from that mistake. Really? Because the grass went and part of it was laziness on my part fully. I'll, I'll, I'll own it. I didn't reseed it and it came back to weeds. So my right. lawn is not, not that it was ever purdy, so to speak, but <laughs> it, it, it's never fully recovered um, because of that mistake that I made. Now back to your, you know, the, the video that you, you mentioned there, Project Oops, that was a chicken tractor, a smaller version of a chicken tractor that we were going to build. And I had this idea in my head that it was going to be this great time 
of us as a family building this chicken tractor and I was going to record it and it was just going to be awesome. It was going to make for some great YouTube content, but I also thought I knew better on how to put the thing together. No, not so much. Not so much. <laughs> I still have that thing and I, it's actually really worked out very well for me. It, it's actually been very, very versatile, but it ain't pretty. That's for sure. What, what do you use it now for? I actually, same thing or, well, I use it for meat birds in the spring. Um, and I use it for turkeys later on in the season. And then in the winter, I've actually used it as a, um, a hut for small pigs. So it really has been a a multi, a a great multi-purpose, uh, piece of equipment on, on the homestead. Um, but I would build it much differently if I were to build it again today. Well, it sounds like that's one of those things where you've got what you got. So you got to figure something out to make it work somehow. And it sounds like you've done that ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. But, uh, you so know, let's, again, let's, it's just a matter of you learn the lessons as you go along. And, and sometimes those lessons are are super expensive. Um, <laughs> and, and, and sometimes those lessons cost animals lives. And that's the sucky part. You mm-hmm. know, it, it's tough to see an animal die. It really is. Um, but a friend of mine, he, he said to me, he said, Brian, when you've got livestock, eventually you're going to have dead stock. And... And that's true. You can, you can have the best environment, but sometimes things just don't go according to plan and animals are curious and they do stupid things. And the next thing you know, you've got an animal that's injured or dead on your hands. And sometimes it's no fault of your own. And sometimes it's because you made a stupid decision. And those, those mistakes I think are the ones that hurt the most. Those so let's, let's most. move into the, the, the guinea hogs there because there was one video you you uploaded i think it was like 2018 where you brought uh two or three of them to be processed mm-hmm. um and you talked about and that's where you actually i think it was episode 60 where you had said what you had said earlier if, if the day i don't feel anything is the day i will not have mm-hmm. animals anymore absolutely what is it specifically that you feel like you go through when you go through that process of and, and I know you've done it yourself as well as have them processed out, off off the homestead is there a difference between the two and what ultimately is it that you're feeling for the animal in that in that moment or in that time yeah so for me when i take them to a processor and have have them processed the biggest part of that that bothers me is not the fact that they're going to be processed. I I'm okay with that. That's we've raised them for that purpose, mm-hmm. but it's that I don't have final control over that step. Gotcha. Um, I, and I just, I feel like it's a great responsibility that I am now kind of passing on to somebody else. Um, and, and so there's a part of me that feels like I'm not living up to my obligation to do the best by that animal. Now, quite frankly, they probably do a much better job of dispatching that animal than I would because they do it day in and day out. They do it day in and day out. And where I take my animals, I have all the confidence in the world. They're great mm-hmm. people. Um, I, I, it's not that I feel like they're going to abuse my animals. I don't. Um, but there's it's just, just that, that last step of, that you're disconnected from, right? Absolutely. Um, now when I dispatch the animals here on the homestead, there is that sense. It's a very, very grave responsibility to me. 
And there are some guys on YouTube, hand hew, hand hewn farm. Um, they do a lot of videos on processing pigs. And one of the things that they do every time they process a pig is there's a poem by, um, oh goodness, Wendell Berry, Wendell Berry called at the hog killing. And they read that poem every time. And then they take a shot and toast, uh, to respect and to honor that animal. And to me, there's just something, and maybe it's just the romantic in me. I don't know, but there's just something about that. Just taking time to consider the gravity of what you're doing and the fact that, you know, what you're about to go through is a very, very serious thing. And Mm. I I don't want to misquote the poem, but one of the other, one of the things uh, kind of the end of the poem, it goes something along the lines of as we turn hogs into people, hopefully not the other way around. And it's just, it's very, very powerful. Um, But it's, it's a matter of understanding where our food comes from and being connected to it. And once you do that, You want to use every piece and bit of that animal because you want to honor it. It's, it's given the ultimate sacrifice. It's died so I can live. And I know that sounds dramatic, but it's the truth. That animal has given its life so that I can live. And so I don't want to waste a morsel of, of that animal. I, you know, they, we, we talk about from nose to tail, I actually did a, uh, a, uh, a podcast episode called from beak to butt kind of riffing mm-hmm. off of the nose to tail thing with pigs and talking about with chickens. But again, just this idea of understanding that we don't want to waste anything. And in the United States, you know, we think about, okay, yeah, we love bacon. I mean, most people love bacon. And if you don't like bacon, there's, there's something wrong with you. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's sure. like pe- people that don't like chocolate and don't like bacon. I don't trust them. There no. <laughs> Those are the two? Bacon and chocolate? Okay. Bacon chocolate and maybe coffee. I don't know. Those are like the three like what? <laughs> no. Um, you know, but we, we love bacon, we love ham, we love pork chops, we, we love those kinds of things. But man, you talk about eating pig ears, man, ooh, pigtail. Oh, how could you do that? Mm. And then you get down into eating, you know, stomach or you, you know, heart or liver. And you know, we in the United States think that we're a little bit too good for that kind of stuff. And I think that's, it's very sad. Um, we, we turn up our, our noses at that and we're missing a lot in those, absolutely. those innards as well, as far as the liver and the heart and the intestines, like the amount of micro and macro or micronutrients you get out of that is outrageous. And, and the thing about it is, yeah, okay. We all probably have had that nasty liver and onions, you know, you, 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 you know, at one time or another, many people have had That's my that. dad's favorite dish. Um, I don't know why, but yeah. And, and I'm not, I'm not too, I'm not too, uh, now I've had liver and onions that I liked. So sometimes I think maybe okay. it's the way it's cooked. Um, gotcha. but by and large, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan, but we went to a restaurant a couple of years ago and they had a, it is actually a uh, Spanish restaurant. They have the tapas menu and they had a, um, a liver pate on, on the, on the tapas menu. And so I said, I'm going to roll the dice on this. And it was liver and bacon. And I don't know. And let me tell you something, dude, I couldn't get enough of it. It was just absolutely delicious. And, you know, so 
I think sometimes it's just a matter of we don't know what we don't know. And so we think oh, that's kind of gross or we've had bad experiences with, with something. Um, I did another video on uh, how to cook a pig heart. It's uh, yes. actually one of my most watched videos. I think after the tractor video, how to cook a pig it heart is. is like number two. Um, it is. <laughs> and I've gotten some, I've gotten some crazy comments on there. I've got some people that thought I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm crazy. Other people loved it. Um, but you know, it was good. It was good, man. I really, and I, it wasn't like I was just hamming it up for the camera. Like, Oh, this is nasty. We got to make it look good. No, right, it right. was good. It was good eating. And well, after uh, the video with the, with the hogs that you had brought, you sat down and did a video with your family where you did, it was sausage chops. And I believe shoulder bacon mm -hmm. along with greens, I think, and potatoes that you had grown and, and, Immediately, my first thought is, is I wonder how different it feels or, or I should say how different it tastes knowing all the effort that you put into it, raising that animal and caring for that animal. Does it in your head almost make it a little better, even if it already is so much more better? 100%. 100%. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's that spice of satisfaction. You know, when you sit down to a plate of food and you look at that food and you think, man, 75, 80, 90% of the food on this plate. I have had a direct hand in raising and growing and, and producing this food, man, it's, it really is just this awesome sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. And for me, it makes the chip and ice when it's 10 degrees below zero um, and caring for sick animals and, you know, turning a canner off at two o'clock in the morning and, all of those, it makes it all worth it. When you sit down, and you think there is no way I could ever get food that's fresher and more nutrient dense than the food that I have grown and I have on this plate. My family will never eat any better than they're going to eat right now with this meal. And I, and I, I really believe that. And, and so there is, I think a sense of satisfaction that comes along with this, um, Maybe it's in my head that I think that things taste better, but I, I don't know. I, I just, I love, we had it happen last weekend. I mean, all you did was a little S and P, right? Salt and pepper. That was it. Yeah. I mean, not a whole heck of a lot. Uh, right. Last weekend we had my mom and dad over for, for Sunday dinner and uh, we did a roast chicken. It was a chicken that we had processed. We had some, um, let's see, we had some squash that we grew last year and, and had had in the cold in the, in the root cellar, we had, um, some applesauce that I made, um, everything on that plate with the exception of the rice, we haven't started growing rice here, <laughs> right, but sure. everything else on that plate was stuff that we had raised, grown, produced, processed here on the homestead. And that was just such a great, wonderful feeling of accomplishment. It really was. So let me steer the direction slightly differently for you. Um, I'm hoping this spring to put up a, a chicken coop. Um, I've already checked. I know you and your boy said the first things you should do is check your local regulations and laws. I'm good. I'm clean. I can have up to six uh, chickens for a beginner. Yeah. What would you recommend? What would you suggest? Is there a book or is there a breed or is there something that you would point to and say, if you're going to do anything, at least do this? Well, 
um, first of all, I would recommend that people listen to the podcast series uh, that I put together on raising chicken. So I think that's a great yep. resource. <laughs> no, it'll be in the link of the of this one yeah. if you want to find it. Um, there there are a lot of great resources out there with regards to um, raising chickens. Now, having said that, you do need to be careful because just because somebody put it on the Internet does not make it so. And I do see so much bad information with regards to raising chickens, even on well-known blogs, well-known forums, well-known homesteading groups. Um, and, and take it for what it's worth. That's my opinion. Sure. Um, but there are certain things that some people will recommend that you do with regards to chickens that I say is hooey. Um, and so just keep that in mind. Uh, but as far as getting started with chickens, it's a matter of just getting them. They're not that complicated to raise. They're one of the easiest animals to raise. One of the easiest things to keep. Um, and you know, you give them food, you give them water, you give them a shelter where they can get in and out of the wind and that's it. You know, if you're wanting them for eggs, you give them a nesting box. I mean, they're not really complicated animals to care for and to raise. Um, so I think pretty low maintenance overall? Big time. Um, you yeah. know, you, you, you give them feed in the water. You give them, I mean, you give them feed in the morning. You give them water in the morning. And you, you gather the eggs in the afternoon. You check the water to make sure they didn't run out. And that's it. Um, you know, if, if, if you've got predator problems, then you might need to lock up your coop at night. Um, sure. But... Now, knock, knock on wood here. We've been very, very <laughs> fortunate with regards to nighttime predators. We don't lock up our coop at night. They, ch the chickens come in and out as they, as they will. Um, and you know, we don't free range them. We do keep them in a run because we do have a lot of aerial predators here. So, yeah. um, we, we try to keep them in that run. And then we have this owl that we kind of move around on the outside of it. That's supposed to fool the, the aerial predators. I don't know if it works or not, but it gives us something to do, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, now some people will free range them and certainly free ranging chickens is a great way to handle ticks. Um, but it's also a good way to make enemies with your neighbors. It's, yeah, uh, it's a great yeah. way to make enemies with your, your wife, your husband, your significant other, because they, step out onto the porch into a nice warm pile of chicken poo um, <laughs> with their bare feet. That's not pleasant. Um, right. And they, and they will poop right in front of your door. I mean, it's like, they're going to find your door the most, you know, the worst place to do it. And that's where they're going to go. Um, they'll get into your garden. They'll get into your flower garden, you know, so free range in chickens. It looks nice on Instagram and Pinterest, but it does come with its own set of, uh, you know, its own set of downsides as well. Um, but you know, as far as books go, um, well, just give me one second here and you see, I'll this. tell you while you're looking, Brian, mm -hmm. while you're looking for, for what you're looking for, I was your prototypical dope and just went to like Barnes and Noble and got, you know, the beginner's guide to raising chickens. Cause you know, you can't start raising things without some idiot guide to start you off, but it seems like. Uh, when I look in this and I compare it to what you talk about on your podcast, uh, there seems to be a, I don't want to say discrepancy, but I almost feel like what you talk about is very geared towards uh, the Northeast 
as opposed to where these books seem to just be like, if the weather's perfect and everything is perfect, here's how you raise the chicken, which couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah, um, for sure. I think, you know, my my approach to taking care of chickens is is really, to a certain extent, a bit of a hands-off approach. You get into some of these backyard chicken books and, you know, people have a tendency to baby their chickens. To me, uh, I don't, I don't look at chickens as a pet. Um, the chickens are there to produce meat. They're there to produce eggs. And I certainly, um, try to make sure that they're well taken care of. But if my chickens got a boo-boo, I'm not running it to the vet. Um, gotcha. and you know, there are some people that will sink a couple hundred bucks into a chicken, um, by taking it to the vet. That's just not how I roll. Um, you know, I try to bind up their wounds as best I can. And, you know, I have my little, uh, first aid kit for, for animals on the, on the farm. Um, but it's very basic. You know, I, I'm not going to stress too much about it. If, if the animal dies or if it looks like it's going to die, I might call it, um, just so it doesn't suffer. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to run it down to the vet and, and get a $200 bill for a, you know, a $15 chicken. Right. You know, that's just not how I roll. So that's the difference between a pet and a, and a, uh, a farm animal essentially, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I know there are people that, 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 you know, are probably going to think I'm cruel and inhumane for having that kind of a perspective. And, and I get that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the difference between a pet and a livestock. And when I have chickens for, you know, um, for a particular purpose, um, that's what they're there. That's what they're here for. And, you know, so again, I'm, I've, I've just chosen to do the best I can with what I got. And right, at the right. end of the day, I, I cannot afford to, to keep incurring vet bills because my chicken has a little bit of frostbite on its comb. Um, I just can't. And so that's one of the things that I have found kind of in the era of Pinterest and Instagram, that a lot of chicken keeping is really geared towards pretty pictures. My opinion. That's true. It's really glamorized, isn't it? People will build these chicken coops that are just insane. I saw one that had a chandelier in it. And then I looked at that thing and I thought a chicken has never been within 50 yards of that chicken coop. Cause I know what my chicken coop looks like and it's dusty and it gets dirty. And, and, right. and you know, we use what's called the deep litter method. So what you do is you just keep adding um, wood chips or hay or whatever it is that you use. We use wood chips and okay. it composts down and then you clean it out a couple times a year. It is actually a very sanitary way to keep chickens. It's a great way to keep chickens warm in the winter. Um, but it's also a very dusty way to keep chickens. And so when I look at these, you know, some of these pictures of these chicken coops on Pinterest and Instagram, I'm thinking that's, that's crazy. It's weird. Um, I don't, you know, and then you look at some of their backyard setups and, you know, it's just beautiful, opulent, you know, nice pea gravel and, luscious green grass and i'm thinking my chickens would have that torn up in two weeks and, and, <laughs> there's and, a and tea the, party happening over here right next to the chicken coop and there's a yeah they have a dust bath over here they'd be pooping right. over there i mean it would you know it's just it, it's 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 not it's not realistic in my opinion right and that's one of the downsides even outside of chicken keeping i think that a lot of homesteaders have a tendency 
a lot of modern homesteaders that have a YouTube channel or Instagram page or whatever really have a tendency. And I think it's just human nature. They are trying to portray the beautiful, the idyllic part of homesteading. And what gets lost is that sometimes homesteading is stinky and muddy and nasty and it's sad and it's heartbreaking and it's frustrating and it's angering and it's just life. And that doesn't really translate well to Pinterest and Instagram. It's so disheartening though, Brian, because not only do people do that with their YouTube channels and their homesteading and what else have you, but they're doing that, I feel like in a lot of ways with their lives as well. They're hiding all of the dirty, gritty, depressing, sad parts of life, which the truth is, is that in those moments, that's when you need to be with other people and communicate with other people more than when you're happy and things are going well. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. It's, I don't know. It's so, it's weird to see that in, in today. And that's part of the reason why I even started this podcast is, you know, to try to find other ways to make connections with people that are mm-hmm. not in my scope. They're not in my world. And I get a, a, a glancing blow at worlds like yours um, and not hold back from the truth of it. I mean, like you said, taking an animal to be processed or processing an animal yourself that's a that's a no bullshit thing. Pardon my French, but that's a real thing that has to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, to to live and to take away from that and to hide those things beneath is just so disingenuous. I feel like absolutely. And and you know, as you were saying, life is life, and mm-hmm. we even outside of homesteading, as you were saying, we have a tendency to just try to put on this veneer of. Everything's great and grand and glorious. Now, on the other hand, nobody likes a whiny butt either. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I had one, I had one friend that was like everything that she posted on Facebook was, it was bad and sad and horrible and life was coming to an end and yada, yada, yada. I, I've never unfollowed anybody. I mean, you know, defriended anybody, but I unfollowed her because I couldn't take it anymore. I just wanted to jump off a building. Um, right. So, you know, there's, there's a balance there. But we got to be honest with people. You know, I don't want to attract people and say, come on over to Homestead and it's this great way. It's fulfilling. You're going to sit down and you're going to have this great plate of food and you're just going to feel so satisfied and it's going to be just wonderful and it's going to be a bed of roses when along the way you've had the animals that have gotten sick and the animals that have died and you've had the muck and the mud and the the nastiness and you've had crops fail and you know, all of that stuff that happened. What's, what's the point of me painting that kind of a picture? That's not, that's not true. It's not real, you know? So, um, I think the same, you know, coming back to the whole chickens thing, chickens can be dirty. Um, chickens, you know, to be honest with you, you get chickens and you understand, you see what chickens eat. And then you might mm. think twice about eating chicken. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, people talk about pigs being a nasty animal. Man, pigs are clean compared to chickens. Um, you know, so, um, but you really do. You you appreciate you appreciate eggs. I mean, and if you raise your own chickens for eggs, let me mm-hmm. tell you something. I, I, and I don't. It's not just in your head. If you crack open an egg out of your coop into a frying pan next to a store-bought chicken egg, you will see a huge difference in the way that the yolk is colored, in the way that the egg white runs. You know how you have those, you know, the the the, the stereotypical egg, the fried egg, 
you know, it's kind of this nice, mm-hmm. maybe oval white shape with the, the, you know, yellow center. Try getting that out of a store-bought egg. It, it never happens. The white just nope. runs all over the place because they've been sitting around forever. Yep. But with a, with a fresh egg, you get that because that egg white is still, you know, it's still thick. And, and, and then the yolks, oh my goodness, they're so creamy and uh, they're almost orange. Um, they're, they're so nutrient dense too, if I'm not mistaken, absolutely. just because just the color for, for, for the color difference, you've got like this pastel yellow, as opposed to this almost borderline, like you said, orange, citru- like orange, orange. It is. Um, yeah. and, and there's so much more nutrients and it's, it's apparently so much more better for you. I'm not a scientist, but uh, scientists have said so. So I'll go with that. Uh, and I'll <laughs> go with it. And if, if, it, if nothing else, if it does, if it's not better for you, I will promise you they taste a hundred times better. There is just, and, and I don't think that's all in my head. I mean, people who yeah. have had, I have a guy who drives an hour one way to my house to buy eggs. Now he's a retired guy. And, you know, I think he likes to drive more than he likes the eggs. Um, sure. But we've made, I, I've developed a great relationship with him. Um, super, super nice guy. Um, and it's not that my eggs are anything more special than somebody down the road that's selling eggs, but mm-hmm. it's just the way that you raise chickens to produce those kinds of eggs produces a much better product and it does taste better. And yeah, the scientists say that they're better for you. So I'm going to, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm going with the scientists. <laughs> that's what we're supposed to be well, doing Brian, right now is follow the science. So we'll just that's see true. That. that is true. Follow we'll the we'll go with that. I appreciate all the time, Brian. I appreciate everything that you've, you've, you know, talk to me about every, I'm, I'm completely sold. If I wasn't two hours ago sold about raising chickens for eggs, I am now. So I hope, uh, hope this spring I'll be able to build one, take a couple of pictures and send them to you. Hopefully you'll be proud of me. Absolutely. Uh, building and up a coop and getting some chickens. <laughs> yeah. Any kind of questions you have, let me know. I, I, I just love helping people. Um, and you know, I, I want people to take those baby steps towards self-sufficiency, self-reliance and sustainability. And I honestly believe it doesn't matter whether or not you live in suburbia or you live in, you know, the country with 20 acres. I think all of us can do something to take a step in that direction towards self-sufficiency, self-reliance and sustainability. There are people in urban areas. In fact, I, I've mentioned this on my podcast there, there's a family down in Australia that have an 800 square foot backyard. And out of that 800 square foot backyard, they claim, now I can't verify this, but I've seen their pantry. Sure. They claim that they raise 80 to 85% of their food from an 800 square foot backyard. That's a, wow. Now what they're doing is they're doing succession planning. They're doing vertical gardening. They're bartering with people for things that they can't raise and grow themselves. But that's all part of the the homesteading thing too, right? Isn't bartering a, a big piece of Absolutely. of of being able to achieve certain levels of you know, hey, I can raise chickens here. You've got a hog there. I'll tell you what, I'll trade you you know fifty chickens for half that hog at the end of the year or something Bingo. to that effect, right? That's part of it. Absolutely, and that's where some people get. That's where some homesteaders, I think, go way wrong. They get mm. they they have this thing where I've got to be self sufficient, self reliant, and sustainable, which means I've got to do all the things. I've got to grow all the things. I've got to raise all the things. And you know, we we a lot of people think of Ma and Pa Ingalls from Little House on the Prairie as the quintessential homesteaders. I I don't know why, but that's kind of in the American psyche when people okay. think of homesteaders, that's who they think of. 
Well, if you've ever okay. read those books or watched the movie, you realize that even Ma and Pa Ingalls were bartering with people. They were trading with people. You know, Pa would go to town and buy supplies. He would go work for somebody for a day, for a half, whatever it is. And, and, and I think as homesteaders, we should do the same thing. Absolutely right. I don't need to raise all of the animals. I raise chickens. You raise pigs. We swap. Everybody's got pork and eggs, pork and chicken, right. whatever. Right. Um, and it works out well. So, yeah, certainly I think bartering can be a great part of homesteading. Um, anyhow. No worries. I think, to be honest with you, Brian, uh, in, a, in you know, a few months from now, I'll probably reach back out to do a, a part two because I have questions here that are unanswered and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do appreciate all the time you've given me. I appreciate you having on the podcast. If you're interested in anything Brian is working on, all the links will be in the description of the podcast. Check out especially his podcast. There's a ton, a ton of valuable information in there, whether it's guarding, hogs, chickens, you name it, it's all in there. So again, Brian, I appreciate your time, man. Thank you.